Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, the Word of God says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to open shame. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the verses that we read tonight. We ask that you give us insight in your word. Give us wisdom. Give me the words uh, that you speak. If you were here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue our lessons on problem passages regarding eternal security. Uh, and there's been much confusion regarding the verses that we just read. If you'll remember, we mentioned that there were uh, several of these passages that are confusing found in the book of Hebrews because of the delicate subjects that God is speaking about. Some people read these verses and believe that you can lose your salvation. The problem is that if you read these verses and use them as a reason to lose your salvation, then the Bible very clearly teaches that if this passage teaches that they could lose their salvation, it also means they could never be saved again. Now, most people that even believe you can lose your salvation don't believe that. They don't believe if you ever lose your salvation that, well, you can just never be saved again. Uh, so clearly the Bible is not speaking about that. Even people that believe you can lose your salvation don't believe this false doctrine. So what do these verses mean? What is the, the deep meaning of these scriptures? And as always, we're going to consider the context. Remember, we talked about the two largest reasons or most common reasons why verses are used to create false doctrines are they're removed from their context and words are misdefined. They apply the wrong definitions to words and will I think we have one more lesson in this little mini-series as the Lord leads, and we'll really talk about that, how uh, Bible words can have more than one definition based on the context. But we're not going to dive, dive deeply into that tonight. But we do want to look at the context of these verses because it's important why God's trying to, what God's trying to say, who is he talking to. And we need to consider the context. So if you go back up to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity. Now, here's a Bible word that often gets people in trouble. Perfection, the way we commonly use it, means sinless or perfect. The Bible meaning of the word perfection is usually maturity. So let's grow on to maturity. An adult human, uh, a baby grows into perfection. It grows into a baby human turns into an adult human. A, uh, an apple seed grows into perfection. The seed turns into a fruit-bearing plant. It's a mature plant. So whenever you read perfection in the Bible, it doesn't mean sinless perfection or the absence of sin. It's talking about maturity. So here the, the idea is that God wants us to leave the doctrine leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, so the basics, the fundamentals, every Christian should have the fundamentals down, and then we should move on towards perfection or maturity 
learning the things beyond what baby Christians would learn. The Bible divides uh, the, the Word of God into two types of food, milk and meat. Milk are, is the type of food that anybody can drink. Baby Christians can understand the milk of the Word. Matter of fact, they have to drink the milk of the Word just like a baby who can't eat anything else than mother's milk in the beginning. They, they live on that milk until they're old enough to chew meat. But how foolish would it be if, if after they're old enough to eat solid food, if they never did, they just kept drinking milk their whole lives. That would not only be foolish, but it would be detrimental to their health. As you get older, you need more sustenance. You need a better uh, quality food and a more broad array of nutrients. And so the Bible here reminding us that while we all survive on the milk of the word in the beginning, we must move on to the meat of the word if we're going to grow under perfection or maturity. And then he lays some things, uh, mentions some doctrines that we need to move beyond. We need to have a full understanding of these things so we can move beyond them. He mentions here not laying in the foundation of repentance from dead works. There's one doctrine, faith toward God, a second doctrine. The doctrine of baptisms, third doctrine. The laying on of hands, fourth doctrine. The resurrection of the dead, fifth doctrine and eternal judgment, the sixth doctrine. See, there's six doctrines that every Christian should understand. And by the way, if you go through our discipleship program, we get through these things and are able to get you a, an important understanding of the basics of the Word of God. He goes on to say, and this we will do if God permit. So you always need to go back and review the basics to make sure you don't get too far away from them. So he said, he said we'll go back over those things. But you also need to be able to move beyond them to grow into maturity. And then he goes on to warn about these warnings uh, that we see here in the scripture. Now, this idea of moving on to maturity, what happened? The problem is that some Hebrew Christians had not been growing spiritually. And after you get born again, it's important that you begin to grow. It would be unusual if you have a baby and that baby never grows. It stays 7 pounds, 12 ounces, and 19 inches long forever. You would say there's something, there's something not right with this child. There's something going on. And there's also something wrong whenever you get born again. If you never grow, you never take in the milk of the word and, and grow thereby and get to a place where you're beyond the milk then there's something wrong. And we move further back into our context and see uh, another admonition that God gave. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11. Uh, the Apostle Paul laments the lack of spiritual growth of some of these Hebrews and reprimands them for not growing into the place of maturity, which in the Bible means teaching the Bible. So look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. See, one reason why they weren't growing is because they didn't want to grow. They didn't want to hear the word of God. A dull of hearing speaks about being slow to hear. Uh, it's not that you can't hear, it's that you're reluctant to hear. You're reluctant to listen. And let me just say, as, as we often remind you, if you don't have an appetite for the things of God, then, then something's wrong. Something's wrong. It's natural to have an appetite for the Word of God. It's very natural to have an appetite to go to church, to, to listen to godly music. 
Now, usually there's one of two problems. Either someone's not saved at all, dead people never eat, right? Dead people don't have any appetite. So if someone's not born again, of course not going to have any, any appetite for the things of God. But another reason why people aren't hungry for the things of God is because they're already full of something else. And you know, if you get full of the world, you're not going to have an appetite for the things of God. I remember coming home from school and, and uh, my mom would often, I'd go in and immediately start to raid the fridge and the cabinets. And sometimes if it wasn't sports season, you know, you'd come in about 3.30. If it was sports season, you'd come in maybe at 5.30 or 6 and head right for the, the cupboards and, and the, the fridge. And mom would be like, I don't eat. You're going to spoil your supper. And for some reason, it bothered my mom that if I were to eat too many Twinkies, that I didn't want to eat the meal that she had labored over for an hour and a half, two hours. For some reason, that bothers ladies. I'm not sure why. Uh, until I started cooking, now I know why. You're in there slaving over a stove and, and somebody filled up on chips and they're gonna be hungry in an hour. Uh, it's a problem. Uh, and so one reason why people may not want the things of God is because they're, they're too full on the world. Right. And that's, a, that's an important thing. If I ever get to the place where I'm not having an appetite for the things of God, all I have to do is start checking my life and see what's going on, because there's something wrong. And we all need to pay attention to that. And sometimes it's we're dull of hearing. We don't want to hear because we're listening to something else. We don't want to eat the, the word or take in spiritual things because we're full of the world. Look at verse 12. For when, the, for, when for the time ye ought to be what? Teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a what? Is a baby. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age or mature even those who by reason of use have exercised, uh, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So a lot we can unpack in those verses, and we won't go too deeply into it, but notice that the idea is maturity. <laughs> there ought to be a time when we get past understanding the first principles of the oracles of God, which, by the way, in chapter 6, uh, he's saying we got to get past these first principles so we can move on to maturity. Uh, and the idea of maturity is ultimately teaching. One man said, you don't fully understand a concept until you can teach it to someone else. And so if I can't explain a concept to you in simple terms, I don't fully understand it. God's plan is that every Christian become a teacher. That, that might mean standing in a classroom, a Sunday school class, or a, a prison, or a nursing home, or a children's church, or in a church service. It could mean that. But everybody's a teacher. Every parent teaches their children. Every supervisor at work or co-worker teaches the new co-workers. Every friend teaches somebody else. And so all of us are teachers in our own right. The problem here was they weren't teaching the Word of God. And they weren't capable of teaching the Word of God because they, they had gotten to the place 
where they were back to needing milk instead of meat. Here's an important concept. If you sit in church too long doing nothing, you actually revert back to the place where you need to be taught again. And there's a stark picture of this in the geography of the Middle East. Of course, pray for what's going on in Israel, the Middle East, and that whole region is all riled up and stirred up. A lot of end times things going on there. You want to keep an eye on that. Uh, in a lot of those countries, they, they literally hate Israel. They, they hate Israel. And it was long before there was ever a place called Gaza. They hated Israel for a, a time immemorial. Uh, and Arabs fight among themselves. Shia and Sunni will fight amongst themselves, but they can all agree to hate Israel. Uh, and we, we have to understand that there's a lot of prophecy towards that area over there. And that's why you see if when Israel comes under attack, all the nations surrounding want to get involved. Go back and do some, some research on the Six-Day War. I mean, there's been a lot of times that these countries have banded together to try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Uh, and for many of them, that's their stated goal. One of their stated goals is to rid the world of Israel and Hebrew people. Uh, and so we need to be praying for all that over there. Has Israel done everything right? No. Uh, do they need God? Yes. Most Israelites are... Hebrew culturally, but not really spiritually, and even then the entire religion uh, rejected the Messiah when he came, uh, and there's been a lot of, of trouble with that, but God's promises are still upon Israel, and whenever the church is raptured out, God will once again work for the nation of Israel through the end time, so God's not going to let Israel be destroyed, but there, there is a lot of persecution and other things, and even in the end times, we see them uh, running from persecution. Boy, there's a lot of things we could say there. But I digress. We, we can't get into all that. I will preach a whole message about all the prophecies and such that are being affected by what's going on over there now. But over there, there's a geographic illustration. You have the Jordan River. And then you have something called the Sea of, of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And the Jordan River has an inlet and an outlet in the, the Sea of Galilee. Very profitable fishing place, very beautiful. But at the end of the Jordan River, there's a place called the Dead Sea. Does anybody remember why it's dead? Too much salt. Too much salt. The highest concentration of salt on the planet and I believe it's the lowest place on the planet as well. But if you think about salt as nutrients, so here's, here's the illustration. The Dead Sea has so many nutrients, it can't support life. Think about that. And every Christian is either a Dead Sea or a Sea of Galilee. If all you do is take and 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 take, and you never, you don't have any outlets of Christian service. You don't have any, any way in your life through the church or personally to give what God is teaching you. Then eventually you sit, soak, and sour and become an unuseful Christian in the work of God. 
we need to make sure that each one of us have an outlet to teach. I'll tell you what, one of the best things you can do is whatever you learn on Sunday, if you want to remember it, tell somebody tomorrow. Go to work and say, hey, guess what I learned in church yesterday? He said, they don't want to hear it. You might be surprised that you might find one or two guys that they just get used to having you come in and tell them what you learned in church. And here's what I learned in church. Go home and say, here's what I learned. Call somebody on the phone and say, hey, man, I learned this in church today. Really helped me. The more you talk about it, the more you understand it, and the more it becomes a part of you and the healthier Christian you become. But here's the people. They had so much milk and so much meat, they never became teachers, and they forgot how to even handle the milk. So somebody had to go through again and teach them again the first principles, uh, and they couldn't handle the straw. Meat. Look at verse 13. For everyone that is that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. So if all you can do is handle the, the milk of the word, you're not skillful enough to take the Bible and apply it to someone else's life, which, by the way, is where the real power of the Bible is. The real power of the Bible is not sitting on your shelf or sitting on your nightstand or your coffee table. The real power of the Bible is taking what's inside it and applying it to someone's heart, life, or situation. Now it comes alive and can help them. It helps us to say it. It helps them to hear it. And we get more and more skillful in the Word of God. I try to remind you that we shouldn't just be Bible readers. We should study the Bible. You know, get a good study Bible, and when you read it, study the notes, look up different topics, pick a topic. Hey, if you're married, you've never done a Bible study on marriage, you might want to do that. If you've got children, you've never done a Bible study on how to be a good father or a good mother, you might want to do that. If you've got somebody who's struggling with something, somebody who's not safe that you care about, you might want to become an expert in salvation, how to talk to people about their soul. Uh, you, you see the things going on in the world, everybody's wondering, you might want to become a bit of an expert, do some Bible study. And we live in a world today that's never had more information, but also people have been, there's never been a, a generation where people have been more lazy with the information available to them. Remember when we, have to use, we used to have to go to the library? Remember that? <laughs> and the knowledge was in these things called books and Boy, the internet back then was a set of encyclopedias in your house. If you needed to know something, you'd go look up the encyclopedia, dictionary, uh, all these things. And what that did is it, it gave us the ability to learn. I learned in college that our college president used to say, you don't go to college to learn, you go to college to learn how to learn. Most people will go through 12 years of school and never learn how to learn. <laughs> Matter of fact, nowadays they're just passing people through to make the, the grades look good and all that kind of stuff. They're just shoving people through. Somewhere along your life, we've got to learn how to learn. And we apply that to the scriptures where I want the milk, but I want to get past the milk where I can get into the meat of the word. <clears throat> and one of the evidences that I am skillful in the word of God is that I can teach someone else what I have learned. Every soul winner is a teacher. I believe this is why one reason why God wants every Christian to be a personal soul winner. He said, well, I just don't know how to lead someone to the Lord. Well, start leading people to the Lord and you won't forget. <laughs> right? Start witnessing to people and you won't forget how to witness to them. 
I started helping people, and you won't forget how to use the Word of God to, to help them. And so this idea that maturity, so in the context, Paul and the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul is pushing them through maturity. He's rebuking them for not becoming mature uh, and not being able to teach and having to be retrained in the basic things. And then he says in, in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, because of all that, we need to leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Let us go on to perfection. So you see how all this fits together. But notice in verse 4, he kind of takes a pause and says, For it's impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away and renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Let's consider the meaning of these verses after reading the context. As we explained before, the nature of the book of Hebrews is a, a warning and an admonition, an encouragement. Many Hebrews had trusted Christ. But repeatedly in the book of Hebrews, God warns the Hebrews against returning back into Judaism. There were Jewish people who saw the work of Christ and the power Christians had exercised in Jesus' name. They had seen people get healed. They had watched the miracles. They understood that there was a power in this thing called Christianity. Some of them had left the temple to attend churches. They were hearing the gospel regularly. They were witnessing the work of the Holy Spirit around them. But wait a minute. They themselves had not yet trusted Christ. So we find three types of people in the Hebrew church, just like there's usually these three types of people in any church. Number one, we see the unsaved. There were unsaved people in the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem and in these Hebrew churches. Secondly, we see immature Christians. These are Christians that are truly saved, but they haven't grown. Maybe they haven't grown because they just need some time with the milk, or maybe they're dull of hearing and just have never grown. They refuse to be baptized uh, by immersion after salvation. They, uh, they maybe come to church uh, just here and there, hit and miss. They're not really dedicated to the things of God, uh, and they will never grow that way. They're immature Christians. And in every church, we find mature Christians who are dedicated to the things of God, who are skillful in the word, who are uh, understand the milk and the meat. I think we find uh, two purposes for verses 4 through 6. First of all, we see a warning to the unsaved Hebrews. A warning to the unsaved Hebrews. Notice the words in the text, enlightened tasted, partakers, but nowhere does it say that they had received what they had heard. It's almost like they were close enough to get a little taste. They were close enough to have a little bit of light shine through. They were close enough to see the Spirit of God working mightily. But nothing in these verses tells us that they had ever accepted the gospel 
and come to true faith in Christ. Now, what's confusing is all of these things could be applied to believers as well. So believers have been enlightened in a sense where God has ripped the blinders of our lives and the light of the gospel shines through. Uh, we have not just tasted the heavenly gift, we have accepted the heavenly gift. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the world to come. So you can see how this could be uh, confusing. That, boy, is this talking about Christians? Is this talking about uh, non-Christians? And I think uh, that this speaks of people who experience the truth and the blessings of being around salvation without ever accepting it fully themselves. We've got to understand how deeply the Old Testament religion ran in these Hebrew Christians. I mean, it ran deep. It was, it was their entire lives. Their entire lives were built around the Old Testament to the place where there were even discussions. Could Gentiles get saved? And you'll remember that the Jews were shocked that Gentiles could be saved at all when Cornelius got saved. They called Peter and said, explain yourself. What are you doing giving the gospel to these Gentiles? And Peter and the people with him said, look, they got saved just like we did. The Holy Ghost fell on them just like it did on us. And they said, wow, Gentiles could get saved. And then there was a question, okay, these Gentiles can get saved, <coughs> but do they have to keep the Old Testament law? Maybe they can get saved, but they have to get circumcised. They can get saved, but they have to follow through with the Old Testament rites and passages and, and the unfolding of the book of Acts and and throughout the, the New Testament, you see, no, 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 God's constantly trying to get them to understand that in Christ, they have a new covenant. The word New Testament literally means a new covenant, new promises, and that are so much better than the old. The new does not replace the old. The new fulfills the promises of the old. So the New Testament fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. It's not a replacement. Just like Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, he came to fulfill the law. He was the fulfillment of the law, not just erasing it. The Jews thought he's trying to do away with the law, and they missed the fact that, no, he is the very promised fulfillment of the law. What the Bible here is saying, that if they reject Christ, after fully understanding all the evidences of the gospel truth, they saw the evidence as in the world. They watched it. They lived it. They saw the lives change. They saw the healings. They saw these miracles. I mean, they lived it. They understood the power the name of Christ had in life. And they understood the promises in the word of God. But yet, if after fully understanding all of that, they refused to get saved, there's no other way to get saved. If they were to fall away from that, if they were to come to the very cusp of salvation and say, no thanks. It's impossible for them to come to the place of repentance. And the Bible talks about seeing they crucified themselves of the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. How can you reject him and accept him at the same time? There's only one Christ, there's only one cross, there's only one sacrifice, there's only one way to heaven. 
You can't crucify him again and make this one real. There's only one. The Bible says uh, very clearly, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way to heaven. And it's through Christ. And now we see, I believe verses 4 through 6 are a warning to immature believers. The context admonishes immature believers to press on to maturity. But notice that in these Hebrews, there was a lot of pressure for them to turn away from Christianity and go back into the Hebrew religion. There was a lot of pressure. We talked about that. I mean, literally, they were ostracized from society. They lost everything. Oftentimes, they were considered dead by friends and family. A lot of pressure to renounce Christ and turn back. But the Bible reminds them, even if it were possible, notice the, the word in verse 6, if they shall fall away, if it were possible to lose your salvation, there's nowhere else to go for salvation. There's no other salvation available. There's no more sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the only sacrifice. He's the only Savior. He's the only path to heaven. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And then we go on, we look at the further context to bookend this with context so we fully understand it. The Lord goes on in verses 7 and 8 to remind the Hebrew Christians that you can tell the type of a tree by its fruit. Let's look at that. Hebrews 6, verse 7 and 8. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat, or acceptable for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is what? Rejected. It's rejected and is nigh or close unto cursing. Notice the warning here. It's close unto cursing whose end is to be burned. This is again a warning for unsaved believers. And the Bible here is saying, you know the root by the fruit. <laughs> useful plants and trees are a blessing from God. Thorns and briars are useless and discarded. And just like we talked about before, the Bible says you need to examine yourself. Nobody knows whether you're saved but you. Uh, and you know whether you're saved except if you're reprobate, the Bible says. So the Bible reminds us, I wonder if I'm saved or not. Well, has there been a change in your life? And we've got to be, I often stress this, it's hard for you to look at someone's life and say they're not saved because of what you see in this moment. Because all you can see, it's like a picture is a, a moment in time. It doesn't tell the whole story. And so that's why we've got to be very careful. Christians are, are very bad fruit inspectors. Well, you're not saved, you're saved, you're not saved, you're saved. Because sometimes people look like they're saved and they're not. And sometimes people look like they're not and they are. But you know whether you are or not. And what change has Christ wrought in your life? What fruit has there been in your heart and life? And the Bible warns that if there's just thorns and briars, if there's no fruit unto salvation, it's rejected. It's nigh unto cursing. You need to fix that before you get burned because you're close to the curse of eternity without Christ. And then we see 
Verses 9 and 10 give us assurance that these powerful verses are not a warning about Christians losing their salvation. But God separates the saved from the warning given in verses 4 through 6. Look at, at uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. So we're given this, this warning, but beloved, we don't, we don't believe this applies to you because we believe you're born again. We believe you're saved. And he goes on to give a wonderful promise, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. He's saying, hey, hang in there. Press on to maturity. Finish strong. Give people the assurance that you are saved by following through and being faithful to God until the end. It's far better to do a funeral for someone that had the testimony of Christ than to do a funeral for someone you're not sure about. Or God forbid you know they weren't saved. And let me just give you a warning. If I, do the, if I do the funeral for an unsaved person, I can't lie to everybody and say, oh, they're in heaven. Sometimes preachers will do that. And they call it preaching them into heaven. Well, oh, they're probably in heaven. God probably works it all out. They, now we might say perhaps they got saved at some point. We can hope. But dear friend, leave a testimony of salvation. Give people the assurance that you are born again until the end. And then we find some more wonderful verses. Look at verse 17. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's us, the immutability or the unchangeableness of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation or comfort who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. We have assurance that we belong to Christ and he belongs to us. Look at verse 19, which hope, hope is the expectation of good based upon the promises of God, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. God says, I want you to have some hope. I want you to understand that Christ is the anchor of the soul. By the way, you ever seen the Rhode Island flag? Did you know that Rhode Island was such a Christian state that the anchor on the flag actually points to this verse? What's the, what's the motto on the flag? Hope. Read this verse again. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast. The Rhode Island state flag and the motto hope is actually based upon this verse. Isn't that beautiful? You see God separating this warning from the believer? It's a warning to those who aren't growing. Hey, you better check yourself. If you're not growing, if you have no desire to grow, you better check yourself. And if you ever get tempted to turn back, where are you going to go? 
It's only Christ. The disciples, Jesus asked them when everybody turned aside, will you also go away? And I like what the apostles said, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of life. There's nowhere else to go. There's no other cross. There's no other crucifixion. There's no other Savior. If you try to find one, it's like I'm crucifying the Son of God afresh. Now, this is a good warning for all of us and a good admonition to grow. If you're born again tonight, let's say, Lord, help me grow. Help me grow. Help me take what I learn and put it in practice. Help me study the Word. Help me find somebody to teach it to. Write it out in a journal. It will help you remember it. Take something from the lesson and, and give it to somebody this week, and it will help you remember it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth that we've learned this evening. I pray that you give us good insight into the scriptures. Help us give strong warning to people that they need to make sure they're saved. And Lord, also strong hope. And that if we have been truly born again, we need to be faithful to the end. And Lord, give people assurance by our lives. And Lord, you won't forget our labor of love. You're a rewarder of them that diligently seek you and serve you. And Lord, help us to have that hope this week and that anchor of the soul that is our hope in Christ. As the eyes are closed, <laughs>